Would you open your Bibles this morning to Genesis 4? Genesis 4, if that surprises you, um, don't be surprised. We've been in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 for several weeks, and we really are transitioning toward uh, a Christmas theme here. And uh, for those of you who've been with us in recent weeks, I think you might understand the significance of just running a little further with the Genesis baton and recognizing that in Eve, we have an example, a legacy, if you will, of Advent faith. And so I want to encourage you uh, to to consider uh, how she really is at the head of the line of those who long for, expect uh, to see Christmas. And uh, the Christmas story ties all the way back to her, and in time we'll, we'll see some of that a little more specifically. I think every mother has great hopes and expectations connected to the arrival of a child. Uh, Gospel Hope at this moment has a number of families who are expecting children to be born in the near future. Uh, I heard this morning uh, secondhand that one of our uh, dads is kind of pegging the calendar earlier than what the, their due date was given, and so maybe this week even we'll have news of a child being born. I doubt, frankly, that any mother has had greater hopes and expectations for the birth of a child than Eve. And to kind of rewind a little bit as we were looking last week at Genesis 3 and considering how after the sin of, of Adam and his wife, The Lord intervened, pursuing the first man and woman uh, because they had sinned so grievously. And in the middle of, of pursuing them, he had promised them that he would break this spiritual alliance they had just forged with Satan himself. And he would put hostility into the spirit of the descendants of this very woman. And it was in response to that promise And that uh, ministry of mercy, the extension of grace to this guilty couple, that Adam actually gives his wife a second name, and that's the name Eve. And Moses explains that to us at the end of chapter 3. He named her Eve because she would be the mother of all living. So they move from thinking, we're going to die on this day. We've sinned. We deserve to die to this marvelous prospect that there's going to be a new start for them, and there's going to be life, and there are going to be children born to them, and there's going to be work that really is profitable for Adam in particular. So that's what's loaded into my statement that I think no one, no mother perhaps has ever had greater hopes and expectations for a, a child to be born than Eve in particular because the promise God had given was that there would be an offspring, a victorious descendant who would actually crush the head of the serpent, a child born who would grow to be so powerful, so mighty, who would have the capacity to engage this great and ancient foe in a battle where he would win decisively, end of story. But you know, stories in the Bible rarely go as we might expect them to, do they? And it's actually one of the reasons that I personally find the Bible so believable. The heroes and heroines all have deep flaws, except one. They surprise us, uh, we get our hopes built up, and then they offend us. Uh, We sometimes are puzzled by the 
the heroes of the scriptures, and very often we are deeply disappointed. Every arrival, every generation brings new hope for us, and yet a fresh supply of disappointment. And you know, the first 4,000 years of human history, as they are recorded in the Old Testament in particular for us, remind us that we really need someone who can step into this mess, uh, this world that we call uh, our own. Life on planet Earth is not easy. Now, Genesis 4 actually prepares us for this season of Advent, these next Uh, four weeks in particular here in the month of December, uh, we are prepared for these because the, the Genesis account itself is a story of Advent. You know, that word just simply means arrival or coming. And so we use it to speak of great expectations that we have. And even here in Genesis 4, there's a story of joyful arrival, but it's soon followed by a crushing sorrow and disappointment. But then it turns again with renewed hope and persistent faith. And all of it actually plays out over centuries of time. That's one of the things that's, that I try to remind you of frequently is that God's work and God's story is played out over decades and centuries and millennia. And our generation in particular is in such a hurry that if we can't heat it up in 30 seconds or purchase it in 90 seconds, you know, we're, we're like done with it. God's never in a hurry. Never in a hurry to write a great story, and neither should we hurry the story he's writing in our lives. Indeed, Eve, like so many other women in the Bible, lays down a legacy of Advent faith that ran far beyond her lifespan and actually blesses each of us to this day. It is a reminder that God means what he says when he promises In places like Deuteronomy 7, verse 9, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Your Bibles are open. Um, Before we read a portion of chapter 4, go back to chapter 3 and look at verse 15 because this is the key promise that God had given to Adam and Eve and it's the promise that we're actually gonna see begin to unfold in chapter four. In Genesis 3.15, we read these words, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. That is, God is speaking to the serpent and you shall bruise his heel. Now look over at chapter four with me, please. God has actually just driven Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. That's a sad moment for them. But now in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 1, we read, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you 
but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erod, and Erod fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada and the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal, who was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, give us strength to understand your word that we may believe it in its fullness. Give us humility that we may obey it as you instruct us and guide us through it. And we ask that according to your promise, the Spirit himself would bless the preaching and teaching of this word to our hearts. Apart from it, we have no life. Apart from it, there is no wisdom. And we need all that you have created and formed uh, into this word. So bless your promises as we are in need of those blessings. In Jesus' name, amen. It's quite a legacy of faith, and I know that's a longer chapter and portion, and it really doesn't seem much like a Christmas text at all at this moment, but I think in time you'll come to see there really is some remarkable truth here. I want you to notice, first of all, that Eve is actually laying down for us a legacy of faith that's built in the extraordinary mercy of God. Go back to the first couple of verses of this chapter, if you will, please, and keeping it in its context that they've just experienced a severe discipline from the Lord as he he calls them to own their sin, to confess it, 
and then the consequences of sin begin to unfold for them, part of which is the loss of a privileged place in Eden. But it's for their own good, because if they were to reach out and eat from uh, the, the tree of life, it seems, based on what little the text indicates to us, that they would have ended up living in a perpetual state that God did not want them to live in. So they're in a new setting, building a new life. But notice with me, if you will, in verse 1, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. This is a mercy from God that their marriage is restored. Remember how only just a few verses before this, they were each pointing the finger at the other, blaming the other for their sin or passing the responsibility down the line. But God has brought the two of them together and as his plan has always been uh, for a man and his wife to come together in physical intimacy, that is an expression of a spiritual union created by God. The Old Testament uses other terms to emphasize just the physical nature of the sexual union, but this is actually terminology here that is powerfully instructive, noting that this man and woman who previously were separated from one another by their sin against God and sin against one another have now been reconciled to God and have been brought together again. It is a mercy of God that they have been restored in marriage. Isn't it beautiful that Adam's self-righteous hostility toward his wife in particular has been turned into powerful hope? I noted that last week, but remember, as he is confronted by God, he said, the woman you gave me, I mean, blaming God, blaming her, uh, but it has been reversed. And because he sees her through the lens of God's forgiveness and restoration and sees her as the one through whom the promised son will be born, it really does seem that they have come together in joy and love. And this man admires and cherishes his wife. I'm sure she sees him in a different light. And that intimacy of a restored relationship overflows in this conception of a child. The text tells us she conceived and bore Cain. And that brings us to a second thought here, uh, the mercy of a fulfilled promise. She says, when this son is born, I have gotten or I've obtained a man with, literally, uh, you should take out help from, Uh, as some of our English texts say, or the help of, because that's not literally written in. I think that's a great translation, but the editors had to make some choices there. But she just says very simply, I've gotten a man with the Lord. And again, notice Lord is printed in all caps. That's gonna be an important thing for us to keep in mind in the course of our study this morning. It's it's the creator God, the self-existent, sovereign God. He has acted in an extraordinary moment. And tied back to chapter 3, we have every reason to think that her expectation was, this is the one. She gives the credit for this child to the Lord. And then verse 2, again, she bore his brother Abel. God is mercifully at work. It's the mercy of a fulfilled promise. And then don't overlook this. Uh, very quickly, as Moses is summarizing some of the history here, in the second half of verse 2, he says simply, now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of, of ground. Obviously, time is passing, but those established routines of work and worship are really an important part of life. That little phrase, in the course of time, I mean, how many decades would that include? 
These are mature men at this point. Sure, they probably began working at an early age, but there seems to be an independent nature to the work that they're doing now. Every reason to believe that in the course of time, over years, they have become adult men. So while the precise number of years is uncertain, this is not a small passage of time. And the work and worship that is characterized here is a reminder to us of God's mercy. They should have died when they sinned. The day they sinned, they should have died, but they are beginning to find a new rhythm and routine in life that is a mercy from God. But now look at the second half of verse four because she is also a woman who builds a legacy of faith through extraordinary moments of sorrow. There's a spiritual division that begins to emerge in her family, and you see it in the second half of verse four. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And what becomes apparent to us is that Abel is a man of faith and Cain is not. Now, I'm gonna tell you, I think there's been way too much speculation uh, on the details of this, and did Cain offer the wrong sacrifice and offering? I, I don't think that's where the few other scriptures point us, because we know even in the Old Testament system, there were times where you brought an animal to the Lord, and there were times where you brought a grain offering to the Lord. But here's what the scriptures do make plain for us. Hebrews 11 verse four says very simply, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. And he was commended as righteous. In 1 John 3, verse 12, we read, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. See, there's a stark contrast that begins to emerge here. And think of the weight this would have placed on a mother's heart as she watches two sons grow into maturity and begin to work as God had created them for work, but they begin to worship in two very different ways. One son by faith, and God delights in the offering of his faithful worship, but the other seems to be a self-righteous form of worship. That overflows in short order in rebellion. What a sorrow this must have been for Eve as she watched this son's anger begin to emerge and the particular aspect of that that appears in this story. Verse five says, Cain was very angry when God rejected his offering. I want to take just a moment to, to kind of trace the trajectory of Cain's sin and rebellion. Verse 5 not only tells us he was angry that God had rejected his uh, offering, but there is pride that emerges. Look at verse 6. Don't miss the fact that God is speaking personally and audibly and directly to Cain. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Could there be a clearer warning for this man? Cain, Cain, listen to me. That's a very picturesque description of sin as crouching at the door. Do you remember this story uh, that emerged back in 2020? Uh, a hiker down in Provo Canyon. I mean, this was national news. But I remember seeing this video for the first time and thinking, oh, I will never hike alone in these mountains again. <laughs> Kyle Burgess 
who was 26 at the time, was hiking a trail uh, down in Provo Canyon. And apparently, uh, he just stepped in between a mother cougar and her four babies. And the mother cougar didn't like it. You, you should, if you've never seen this video, you, you should go watch it. It's six minutes long where he's videoing this cougar as he backs up and he yells at it, cusses at it. And I mean, in that cougar, this is a still shot of one of those moments where, I mean, it starts coming toward him. And even watching that video, I mean, I just think, oh, I can hardly breathe. Well, Kyle lived to tell the tale and share the video. But there's a bit of a visual image here that ought to come to our minds as a little sidebar. Sin is crouching at the door. There's a predatory nature connected to sin. And Cain was self-deceived at this moment, thinking that, that it wouldn't get him. It's good for us to pause and consider the predatory nature of sin as it is crouched in our lives. Have you seen it lately? Do you have any awareness of it? You're kidding yourself if you think that you're beyond a certain sin or out of the reach of a certain sin or that it's so far back in the rearview mirror it would never come around again. No, it, it's, like a, it's like a silent, stalking predator. It's waiting for the opportunity. And, and sin actually pounced on Cain. It's crouching at the door. It reminds me of what Peter wrote in the New Testament of our adversary himself, who, like a roaring lion, he's not an actual lion, but he's like one. He's always on the prowl looking for those that he might devour. You've got an adversary who is predatory. You have sin itself that's predatory. Don't mess with it. Now back to the text. Verse 8 simply tells us, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. He's a violent man. Verse 9, he's an unrepentant man. When God confronts him, I mean, does, doesn't it bother you? I, I don't think I'm reading something into the text. I'm just like, am I my brother's keeper? I mean, just what raw arrogance and hardness of heart, what snark is, is emerging at that moment? But it's all in, an indication that this is a man who is not willing to own the responsibility of his sin. And God confronts him saying, verse 10, your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And, and God places a curse on Cain. Now you are cursed. But notice what comes next in, in verse, at the end of verse 12 or into verse 13. He's sorrowful, but he's not repentant. How do we know that? Cain says to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Wah! Cain, where's your sorrow over the fact that you've murdered your brother? Where's your sorrow over the fact that you've devastated your father and your mother and some sisters? who are not named, but we know there were sisters born to Adam and Eve. Where's your sense of how you've offended the God who created your brother in his image? My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive. Me, 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 I, I, I. It's an unrepentant heart that we see in this man. So God exiles him. And even in this show's mercy, because Cain's probably not exaggerating when he says, people are going to want to kill me. Probably. Sense of justice rises up. But God actually says, if anyone kills Cain, I will avenge. But here's the tragedy. Look at verse 16. There's faithlessness 
Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. He left. Yes, God had exiled him, but do you know, can you think of one time in scripture where somebody in genuine repentance and and humility came back to the Lord saying, please forgive me, please have mercy on me, and God said, no, I won't. There's no indication that Cain was sorrowing in a way of repentance that would lead him back to God. And you know, that faithlessness in him turns into a faithless lineage. That's why I took time to read 17 through 24, and there, there, there's a lot there, but the multiple generations that are descended from Cain culminate with that great, 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 great grandson, Lamech, and, and you see two evils. First of all, he's the first one to multiply wives. And second of all, he actually sings what is described as a sword song. There are musicians today who write lyrics and create tunes that would boast and brag about the violence they've done. That's Lamech. He's singing a song about his murder. Fathers and mothers. But because Cain is the father of this lineage, we ought to consider well the highways some of us pave for our descendants by our own rebellion against the Most High God. You choose to leave God's presence, don't be surprised if your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren never return to his presence. It's sobering, isn't it? Eve actually has a double sorrow, doesn't she? When we read the story from her perspective, it's devastating, it's overwhelming. She loses two sons, really. One in a tragic murder and the other in spiritual exile, attends a funeral she never imagined she would have to attend, and at the same time watches a son travel over the horizon, as it were, never to return. The sorrow of a rebel son and the sorrow of a lost son were probably overwhelming for her. The scriptures do not record anything for us along these lines, but it's not unreasonable to think that she lay awake in the middle of many nights, like so many other moms, agonizing, crying, looking to God for answers to hard questions. Where is the victor's son? Where is the promised offspring? Clearly it's not Cain. Clearly it's not Abel. Then we come to verse 25, and look at the text again with me if you will. Because it is a legacy of faith built on the promises of God. And Adam knew his wife again. Well, you know what? It's apparent. That's not just a small factoid. Tell us how Seth got here. No, I think it is actually evidence that they are continuing to live by faith in God's promises. The Bible doesn't tell us the specific chronology. I could be wrong in this, but it it reads to me as if Seth was born after the tragic events of verses 3 through 16. Now, I know there are multiple generations of Cain that are described there. I don't think it's after Lamech is born, you know, multiplies wives in sin, sings, sings his sword song of, of violence, and then uh, verse 25. I think this probably happened after Cain and Abel. Cain had sinned and murdered his brother, I, but I, that's just my speculation. But it is nonetheless an act of faith, and I, I see that in part because of what Eve 
says, and isn't it interesting, Adam gave her her first two names. Remember, the first one was Isha, which we translate as woman. Second name is Eve. Now it's, it's Eve who's naming all three of these boys. She named Cain. She named Abel. She's naming Seth. But look at what she tells us about this name. It's just supercharged with a beautiful testimony of faith. God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Now, there are a couple of things emerging here. I think, first of all, the fact that Adam and Eve came together again is a simple but beautiful expression of a return to the life of faith God has called them to. That's the effect of God's word in our hearts when life is difficult and we can't find answers to some of the really hard questions. I love the chorus of the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Uh, I think Matt introduced it to us, first of all. And uh, there's a group that's added a chorus to it. William Cooper did not write uh, the chorus. God moves in a mysterious way as wonders to perform. Plants his footsteps in the sea, rides upon the storm. Those are just beautiful lines. But the, the, the recent chorus that's been added includes those lines, When fears are great and comforts few, we hope in mercies ever new. We trust in you. You see, that, that's the song of God's people even through the really difficult and dark places. And people of faith hold to the promises of God precisely because the sorrows are deep and the fears are great and the comforts uh, of life are few. So here they continue to live by faith uh, but they are testifying to God's promise. So let's return. She, she names him Seth and tells us God has appointed for me another offspring. God, the sovereign one, has sovereignly appointed another offspring. And she goes back and uses the very word that God included in Genesis 3.15 in his promise as he was speaking directly to the serpent, but it was given for Adam and Eve. An offspring of this woman will crush your head, Satan. And she chooses this name, Seth, and ties it directly to that promise of the offspring. Buried one that she believed was God's chosen offspring because she says, instead of Abel. That's a telling line, isn't it? I wonder when she had come to the conclusion that Abel was God's appointed one to carry the promise, not Cain. When had she seen the marks of what 1 John 3, I read this earlier, 1 John 3, 12 states clearly, Cain belonged to the evil one. That's the force of those words. What a, what a terrifying thing for a mother to look at a child and say, he does not belong to God. Some of you wrestle with that though, don't you? What a weight to carry. And I was thinking how Eve will carry this double sorrow for all her days, but here's the beautiful thing. The promise of God carries her. And dear mom, dear dad, you who look at a child right now and say, he doesn't belong to Jesus, she doesn't belong to Jesus, you rest in the promises of God. The story has not been written finally. And while there's breath in you and breath in that child, there is hope. God has not forgotten that this world and this woman are still waiting for the arrival of the promised one. Christmas hasn't come yet. Now look at verse 26. So they sweetly continue testifying to God's promise, but here they are watching God fulfill his promise. And this is, this is part of the reason to read the genealogies. I, I know often when you come to those in your morning devotion time or evening devotion time, you're like, oh, great, here we go. I can't even pronounce all these names. 
And, and to be really honest, I had a moment of fear as I was reading through the, uh, the, that genealogy portion of Cain's descendants it's just a few minutes ago. I'm like, ah, I should have practiced that better. I hope I'm saying that right. Well, whether you get the pronunciations right or not, don't miss the force of what the Lord is laying out before us. Look at verse 26. To Seth also a son was born. Grandchildren. And everybody who has them says they're the greatest. And then they make funny comments because you can send them home when you're done playing with them and all of that, right? But again, from Adam and Eve's perspective, grandbabies enter the world. But look at what Seth does. He names his son Enosh, which just means man. And it's interesting in the Old Testament in passages like Job 7, uh, 17 and 18, or Psalm 8, verses 4, 5, and 6, that name Enosh is used in, a, in, a, in just a, a general term to describe people, human beings like you and me, in our weakness. And I wonder if Seth is, is saying, you know what, we're starting to get this thing figured out. We're not a superhuman race. We're not people who have all the answers and have all the resources and, and, and have the path of life you know, well under control. No, we're people who are weak. But here is what is clear we continue reading, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And that's a term that will appear in some critical places beyond these early chapters of Genesis when Abraham is called by God and he comes face to face with his creator God and God says, walk before me. Abraham actually builds an altar and he begins to call on the name of the Lord. There are others in Genesis and then throughout the Old Testament that are described as coming into that moment where they know that they are accountable to the God who created them, called into relationship with him and they respond by calling on his name. And that's really significant because for all the people who've received names up to this point in, in Genesis 1, 2, 3, and 4, nobody gave God his name. His name is a revelation of what he is. He chose his name. And this particular name, as we know uh, as Lord or Yahweh or Jehovah, is the special name where, you remember in the conversation with Moses, Moses says, who should I say has sent me when, he, when God says, I want you to go down to Egypt, tell Pharaoh to let my people go. God simply says, you tell him and them, I am has sent you. I am that I am. That's the name that speaks of God in his self-existence. It gives expression, as one author writes, to his self-determination, the independence of God, that which especially in soteric associations we are accustomed to call his sovereignty. Well, here's a generation of people who, broken by their sin, deserve to die but haven't experienced that. They are receiving the mercy of God, Adam and Eve coming together in faith, creating a child, that child growing to maturity, creating his own child, naming him Enosh. And this is the moment in human history where there is a generation of righteous ones who say, we need this God, we will invoke his name over our lives, over our households, over our work and worship because apart from him there is no life and if you read into chapter 5 and you should you get a little piece of the full genealogy of of christ seth gives birth to enosh enosh to kenan kenan to mahalalel mahalalel to jared then a guy named enoch and we all want to know the full details on his story right methuselah comes along and then lamech and finally after Lamech, 
a guy named Noah, the most famous boat builder in human history. But you know, those few generations are just a part of a full genealogy that Luke records right after he tells us the story of a baby being born in Bethlehem and angels announcing his birth and shepherds coming to see that baby. And the genealogy actually spans not only those early generations from Adam to Noah, but adds another 66 generations before we come to Christ. Now there are two thoughts here uh, in conclusion that I wanna share with you that I hope will just inspire you and cause you to say, Wow, Adam and Eve couldn't see how many generations there were between them and the Christ, the promised offspring who would be born. And though we don't know when Eve died, I think it's reasonable to assume that she probably lived near the age of, of Adam. This is, this is mind-boggling, but Genesis 5 tells us that he lived to be 930 years old. Now, you know what's really cool about that? If you, if you do a little bit of math through there, who lived to be you know, how long and how old they were when their son was born and so on and so forth. It, it, it seems from the record of scriptures that Adam lived to see Lamech born. That's Noah's dad. And there are multiple generations that come in between. It's barely 10% of the full generation to Jesus, but I think how kind God was to let Adam and Eve see that their legacy was not gonna be determined by their sin in the garden, but by the mercy and faithfulness of God. What celebrations they must have had. How many birthday presents did those poor grandparents have to buy through all those years? More children being born, generation by generation. But this is the generation that God will use to bring Messiah into the world. A generation of God-fearing, God-invoking, God-worshipping people. And what a contrast this is to where we land with a guy named Lamech who unsheathes his sword and sings a wicked song to two wives These are humble people who call on the name of the Lord. Are you among those who call on the name of the Lord? Some of you haven't come to the place yet where you have felt the bankruptcy of of your soul, your resources, your education, your training. You, You still think you can do it. Well, if I just work harder at parenting, my kids will turn out right. Hmm. Ah, the job I'm in right now, it's just it's just not the right fit. I'll I'll find another one. Maybe, yeah, I was such a knucklehead when I got married and I got married way too early and I made a wreck of that first marriage. But another, another marriage, I'll prove that it's different this time around. All by yourself you're gonna do this? The God who created you did not position you for independent living. That's deadly. He created you to be in right relationship with him and as you're in right relationship with him, Everything else begins to find its proper place. Doesn't make it easy. Remember, this is a woman who's building a legacy of faith through the deepest sorrows any human being could ever experience. And as I said before, what's carrying her? It's not even her faith that actually is carrying her. It's God who carries her, and her faith rests in God, just like every one of you is seated in a chair, 
And that chair is what supports your weight. That chair is what gives you the capacity to relax and even rest a little bit. There's no strain on on your muscles at this moment because the chair is holding you. And, you know, that's the only reason that Eve could survive probably 900 years. Because underneath her heart, her broken, sorrowing, questioning, confused heart was a great God with his great promises. Are you among those who calls on the name of the Lord. This is a beautiful story that gives us every reason to trust him. First of all, he is merciful. Just like Eve, you and I have not received what we deserve for our sins. For Eve, her sin and all the dread consequences of it are not actually her legacy. I'm sure she was a proud mother and grandmother. But not just because she would say, look at all this. Adam, look at what we've done. No, because she would look at that clan and say, look at what God has done. Her life is marked by the restoring, sustaining, strengthening mercy of the Most High God. Some of you moms struggle with a sense of failure this morning, and you think your imperfect children are a kind of proof that you're an imperfect mom. You know what's ironic is that both of those statements are actually true, but not for the reasons we want to connect them. You are an imperfect mom, just like I'm an imperfect dad. Your kids are imperfect, just like my kids are imperfect. And while the world may, you know, we, we even judge one another sometimes. <laughs> did you see what so-and-so's kid did? Clearly, those parents have no control. It, it's, it's somewhat humorous, because I used to say it. And you younger parents will say this one day, I have a strong-willed child. Hey, welcome to planet Earth. Every child born is strong-willed. It emerges in different ways. And, and I know some of you will be like, oh, can I tell you about my baby? No. You, you just haven't seen it yet. It's, it's there. It, it's the fallen nature in our kids. The hope, though, even for stro- imperfect parents with imperfect children is a merciful God. What an amazing thing that he does turn not just our, our failings and weaknesses, but even our sin as parents. He turns it for his glory and for our good. See, what makes this story of Eve so powerful is not that a a perfect heroic woman stands at the center of it. Uh, You know, a woman who kind of rose from the ashes like a phoenix of, of sorts. No, it's that God reached into the mess of her life and rescued her. A life of sin and failure, of deep sorrow and and loss is a story of the Creator God who is merciful. Number two, God is faithful. He keeps his promises. The promised offspring did come into the world just 4,000 years later than Eve probably thought. That's hard, isn't it? Just like when you're little, Christmas seems like it will never come. And then you finally get to Christmas and some of your parents are like, no, we will not open gifts until 6 p.m. on Christmas Day because that's what grandma always did. That's That's the godly way to open presents. You know, and a kid's like out of his mind. I mean, I gotta wait all day. You know, for us adults too, sometimes we feel like, Lord, where are you? You promised you would come. Why haven't you? You promised you would save. Why haven't you? You promised, you promised, you promised. And yes, he did, and he's always faithful to keep his promises. And that's why, in a very simple but I think important point, he is worthy of your worship because there's no one like him. Aren't you glad that God has not called you to save yourself 
And he really does mean it when he says, come, all you unfaithful. Come, you who are struggling with your sin. Come, you who are discouraged and depressed and fearful. Come, God wants you to come to him so that you might experience his glorious rescue. A legacy of Advent faith. She, like so many others, died not having seen the offspring, but she had seen God's work. I don't know when Jesus is going to return the second time. I pray frequently, Lord, let it be today. What if he waits another 4,000 years? I just praise God that nobody in the room will live to be 930. That would feel like a curse. I don't know when he will come, but he's promised, and because he has, it will happen are you, are you ready for that? Are you eagerly anticipating that? Advent. It's not just about December 25th. It's about what happened at his first company, coming and what will happen at his second coming. And here we are in between. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Oh, Lord, give us grace to believe all that you have revealed about yourself. And there are some here this morning who continue to try to save themselves They don't have the capacity, Lord, you know that. For so many others, you've been so kind to bring us to that place where we just cried out for mercy and said, Lord, my sins are great, please forgive me. My sorrow is deep, please comfort me. My confusion is overwhelming, please lead me. And how merciful and faithful you've been to do all of that and so much more. Please, please, Lord God, Come to us because we are needy. Come to us because we are broken. Come to us because we are rebellious. Just come. Lord in heaven, continue to penetrate to the deepest places of soul and spirit as Hebrews tells us the word of God does. Reveal the thoughts and intents of our hearts that we we may repent of those things that are sinful and faithless and that we may know you, the living God, and be changed by all that you are. Thank you that you are a merciful God. Thank you that you are faithful. Thank you that you are worthy of all worship. We pray for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.